welcome to Talking Tropes. Where we whisk you away to a tropical island. I'm Hannah. And I'm David. And we're here to talk to you about all of the tropes and rating cliches that you find on television that you love to love and sometimes love to hate. That's right. Um, and today I'm just going to start us off with a quote from great writer, director, and actor Orson Welles, who said, The enemy of art is the absence of limitations. So what does that mean, Hannah? Well, English professor, David. Um, <laughs> <laughs> basically, it's sometimes that limitation can actually uh, enhance your art in some ways. Right. That... Being able to do anything can sometimes lead to creative stifling in certain ways. And I think a really uh, cogent example of that is um, the uh, Star Wars prequels versus the original Star Wars movies. Sure, if you don't have anybody to sort of rein in your your basest instincts, sometimes you just kind of go nuts. Right, and I mean, especially especially that first movie, a lot of it was done really cheaply. Oh, absolutely. Like, they did not have a big budget, you know, but it came out great because they really worked. Like people had the passion. Right. I mean, you're, so we're not talking about. We're Star not talking Wars about today. Star Wars at all. In fact, we're going to be talking a lot about Star Trek because today we're talking about bottle episodes, the lowest budget episodes of our favorite TV shows. Yes. So, um, TV Tropes, uh, which is a wonderful website that you should all check out. Where we plagiarize regularly. <laughs> yeah. We're not sponsored by them, but they're just a great resource. They define a bottle episode as an episode that's designed to take up as little money as possible, and the, usually the way that showrunners and producers decide to go about this is they use either only the regular cast or sometimes even only a, a portion of the regular cast, um, and it's usually set in a single location. And sometimes that's like the set that they use for every single episode, so they don't have to go right. around like, you know, scouting locations or building new sets or designing new costumes or, exactly. you know, when we're talking about Star Trek, who, who were the trope namer for this particular trope, like you didn't have to design any new aliens. With Star Trek, originally they would call these episodes ship in a bottle shows, which got shortened to bottle shows, and then over time became bottle episodes. And these were episodes that took place almost entirely on the ship. Right. And they they usually happened after really big, expensive set piece type of episodes that would that would come before. Um, and one thing about them is that usually since they didn't have some sort of big outside monster threat or um, they didn't have a lot of other characters to bounce off of, it became very much contained and very much needed to be about... The interpersonal relationships of the crew right. or a very like internal moral dilemma. Right. So there's a couple of episodes from Star Trek. Um, we, Guys, we've been watching a lot of bottle episodes just for you, just for this. Oh, yeah. So many... A lot of variety in this one. It's been pretty great. Um, and it's also been pretty interesting. I I think I've come across a lot of really different types of bottle episodes. For sure. I think we could, we could you know, at the end maybe we'll come up with some, some good categories or sub-tropes to look out for in these. Yeah. But let's, you know, let's start with uh, the first ever, you know, official bottle episode as determined by the, <laughs> by the crew. Ship in a bottle. Which is... Um, Season 1, Episode 5 of Star Trek, uh, The Naked Time, which is, 
the fact that that could be a title for an episode just really shows this is this is from the 60s. This is not a... <laughs> no one would call an episode The Naked Time today. I don't know. I feel like there are for sure shows that would. Right. But it, it'd be a little more tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> um, not so sincere. I guess. So this episode is pretty famous because it's the one where Sulu goes crazy and runs around with a sword. I have to say, George Takei was a cutie. Oh Dang. yeah, I mean, he was ripped. He, he's he's like a he's like a pirate on a spaceship, <laughs> and he's just having a time swinging his sword around. It's well, it's good for everybody. So the idea is that. They, the crew becomes infected with this virus, which is transferred uh, via sweat. The, the crew gets drunk. It, they, they literally refer to it as well, being that this chemical makes people behave the way that they do when they drink alcohol. Right. So I think some of the ways that people acted was, like, maybe not so drunk. I don't know. I, I don't know. Okay, let's go through one by one. All right, here's what happens to everybody. <laughs> no, I don't um, think we have to. <laughs> I think we should, though, because I think it's really interesting. Okay. Um, a couple of the crew people get really rapey. There's, uh... Sulu becomes a really fun pirate. Um, I honestly think that if George Takei got drunk, he might teach us what being a pirate is like. And that's... Okay. That's 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 just true in, in, in my mind, in my... Uh, very, very possible. And then um, Spock just like starts crying. Spock has an emotion. He has an emotion, <laughs> and it's like the first time that we really talk about how like Vulcan culture suppresses emotions, but half humans have emotions. It's That's it's very, very it's very interesting, and like Kirk and Spock basically just have this like nice like slap fight drunk slap fight while they cry about being sad while yeah. their ship is about to explode. <laughs> right. So so that's one thing that I think, um, I'm going to say this sets, I think, some pretty good precedents for other bottle episodes that we're going to see. Sure. Um, one big one that I found watching through a lot of these is that lockdown due to some sort of contamination is like a big one. Not just right. in sci-fi, like... Absolutely. In other dramas and comedies, like, for whatever reason, like, lockdown because there's a contaminant out and now these people just all have to deal with each other has been, like, a really good external excuse. Well, because, like, the biggest thing in most of these episodes, yeah, you have to have an external excuse because, like, for the most part, we don't want to be in uh, enclosed spaces with like a few people like we don't like being trapped right or feeling trapped right so you have to come up with like an external reason why these people can't leave and it can't be because we don't have the budget to shoot outside <laughs> right <laughs> um <laughs> uh, right so so i think it sets up that um i think in this one there's minimal i'm gonna say bouncing off of characters like the characters yeah. do interact and they do have to deal with each other it's a lot of like one character in a room on the ship just being drunk by themselves right or like one character being outrageous and the rest of the characters having to sort of deal with that right. um and another thing that i think this episode does um that i think several other bottle episodes did um is that their characters are have to solve a problem like against a ticking clock 
Like, they they have to solve the problem. They have Absolutely. to deal with each other yeah. quickly and in this manner because mm-hmm. there's, again, some sort of external pressure. So I think this one is very much an external bottle episode and is much less about the interpersonal stuff. Sure. Though I think we get... It's not interpersonal, but it is, intr- like, in- inner with each character. I mean, we do sort of... It's about, like, seeing the emotions that we repress because they're, they're in this military setting. I think there's, one, a really nice moment between, I think it was this episode, between Kirk and Ahura, um, and then I think also a really nice moment between Kirk and Spock. Yes, absolutely. And then there's a really nice moment between Kirk and his ship where he says he wants to fuck <laughs> the ship. Does he? That one was that was pretty intimate. He's like he starts like rubbing himself on the walls of the ship, going like, Oh, I see what they call you a she. What a what an amazing uh, ship you are. Okay, well, who knew? I want to fuck de- I definitely missed that. Um, <laughs> so later in that same, this is all season one original gen stuff. Um, the next one happens in episode 15. That was episode five in the episode The Balance of Terror. I mean, this is just like a classic, like when you think about what is Star Trek, you think like, oh, it's the crew sitting on the bridge and they're planning attack against, like, a space attack against another ship that has, like, confusing technology or something. So this one was interesting for me, and I I questioned the bodiliness of it. And I questioned the bodiliness of the Naked Time as well, because while it did all take place on the Enterprise for the most part, it still took place in a lot of different places in the Enterprise. Okay, but, like, you have to think, you know, in the way that we're going to be defining this... We're not talking about locked in a room episodes. We're talking sure. about ship in a bottle episodes. And this is absolutely that. All of those sets they had from previous episodes and they would continue to use for the rest of the show. Like this is these are okay. not new sets. And then yeah, for yeah, Balance yeah. of that Terror, like the Romulan Warbirds, which are the primary threat of the episode, like they are also used again and again in the series. And the costumes for the Romulans were just Vulcan costumes that were repurposed. The the point of the episode was definitely to save money. And I think that that is going to be crucial in defining what is and isn't a bottle episode. Sure, right. Yeah, I would say that. But it definitely does jump between the two ships a lot. Like, I feel like there were two separate bottle episodes going on almost, where we have the Romulan side of it. But I think that's pretty common in... I think that's pretty common in a lot of the ones that we're going to cover, too, is that they'll have maybe two sets, but they're just sets that they already own. Do they already own the Romulan set? Um, maybe they didn't, but they definitely used it again. Um, sure. You know, this like it, it was definitely a pretty cheap set that they knew that they were going to use again because they knew that the Romulans were going to be a consistent threat because they're at war with the Federation. So for me, this one, I felt like the main conflict that went on was really between the two captains. Like, there were some other things that happened, but it really felt, at least for me, like it was very much the two captains were matching wits and battling, and then, like, the way that they responded to one one another's actions is what gave us insight into those characters themselves. Yeah, it's a chess game, which Star Trek loves its chess games. I think that also, like, when I'm thinking about how Gene Roddenberry conceives an episode, like, and his big themes that he loves, is he loves uh, talking about racism, and that was definitely a heavy theme in this episode because Bach looks like a Romulan, and one of the um, crew crew members is very, like, judgmental of him, um, is like, well, why don't you 
just you you would know what the Romulans would be like because you look like them. I, I mean, like I think that that's really the conflict that Gene Roddenberry at least would see as the main conflict, not necessarily like the shooting between the two ships. Absolutely, sure. Um, so then there's a couple more Star Trek episodes that sort of fall into this bottle episode. Right. Well, now we're getting into new versions of of, of Star Trek, right? Right. We're Newer. Talking about Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager. Every Star Trek series has these bottle episodes. Next Generation had an episode called Conundrum, which is a classic amnesia episode. I'm sure you guys have seen, you know, amnesia episodes where everyone forgets who they are. Um, the twist here is that they forget that they are working for a peaceful organization and they think that they're a battleship and they're supposed to go and destroy uh, someone else. I think this one is pretty good. It plays to a lot of next generation strengths. You know, Picard is kind of like in full internal conflict mode of like, should I kill these people when I don't know for sure that my commands are, are moral and correct? Oh my god. So, you know, I think this one's pretty good, but like right. a lot of like the conflict of like we don't know who we are is sort of dealt with in like the first 15 minutes. Sure. Well, so is there a lot of interpersonal content conflict or would you say it's more Very very little. Very very little. And I think that's kind of a Star Trek thing. It's like they don't do the interpersonal thing too much. Okay, interesting. Unless you're talking about like the JJ Abrams Star Treks, you know, like they prefer, like, internal moral dilemmas. All right. So so everyone's sort of dealing with their own moral dilemma in this one. Yeah. All right. It's, it's, except for, <laughs> um, what's his name? Commander Riker? Is that the first mate? Um, his, his internal struggle is he sleeps with somebody when he forgets that he was dating somebody else, and everyone's just kind of cool with it, because it's like... Well, you, you had your memory wiped. I guess you could have fucked anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a great conflict. All right. It's not, it's not very interesting to watch. A little, a little shout. I, I would love to actually get some feedback from Star Trek fans. I know this is this is probably asking for, like, uh, our own crucifixion, but, like... Yeah, we've, we've immediately excluded all Star Trek fans. I like Star Trek. I love Star Trek, even. But it has... <laughs> some things about it that maybe, uh... I think you're just digging yourself question. a hole. Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna say, I, as someone who has not watched a lot of Star Trek, um, but is willing to, are there, like, favorite bottle episodes of yours that you think we missed that, like, I mean, I'm sure, but, like, I, like again, I'd love to hear some feedback from people about what, what they're feeling. Let us know. Okay, so I think this reads really naturally into um, two Twilight Zone episodes. Yes. S some more Kirk-style acting from William Shatner. In, uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, I think also because the bottle episode itself really, it's all about the internal conflict. It's not about characters bouncing off each other necessarily. It's about people being... And, and also the reasons why these episodes exist is sort of the same between Star Trek and Twilight Zone because you have these really big budget episodes where they buy all these costumes and they, you know, create elaborate sets. And then you have to balance that out by setting something just in one 
specific location with just one actor at the front. Right. Um, so we watched a couple of them. Um, we watched, uh, they're both from season five of The Twilight Zone. We watched uh, episode three and episode five. Mm-hmm. Um, episode three is Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which is the, there's a man on the wing, the classic. There's a man on the wing. It's a gremlin. Um, it's, it's like, people make fun of that episode all the time, but I honestly think it's, it's one of the best Twilight Zone, um, Twilight Zone episodes, and easily the best depiction on film of the fear of flying, and, and that phobia. I, I don't think I have a lot to say about it as a bottle episode, necessarily, um, just because it's pretty standard, it's all in the plane, there's, like, the set of the wing right outside the plane where the monster is, and that's about it. I would say, as a bottle episode, I think it's interesting because it ties into the theme of, of claustrophobia and and fear of being stuck in one particular place. Sure. When you're on a plane, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're trapped in a very enclosed space, and they can't do anything to let you out. You're, it's another external way of trapping you because you're on a plane. Exactly. You have to be there for whatever amount of time you have to be there. Yeah. They can't throw you out. (laughs) (laughs) But I I do want to say this one thing. At the end, they're kind of like, but then they discovered that the monster was real. And I'm kind of like, wait, but but it's still, it's still metaphorical and it's real. It's a hallucination. (laughs) Because that's what Twilight Zone does, Hannah. That is the, that is the purpose of this show. All right. Fair enough. It's to it's to mind fuck you. You just gotta you just gotta take it. Okay. All right. Um, I surrender to the Twilight Zone. Um, then the another one we watched was the season five episode five last night of a jockey, uh, starring Andy Rooney. No, uh, Mick, Mickey, Mickey Rooney. Rooney. Oh my god, not Andy Rooney. Jeez. <laughs> Mickey Rooney, Different. famous for his uh, yellow face in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um, and has a good old-fashioned breakdown in this one. Yeah, it's really good and really old-fashioned. <laughs> yeah, I, this one, this one, I think, was probably my favorite of the the bottle episodes that fall into the internal dilemma, sort of. Um, okay. Because yeah, because I, I, I think that. technically he's having an argument with like another. So just to, just to go over like the plot of this episode. Yeah, Mickey Rooney is a jockey who is down on his luck. He, he lost some bets that he made and broke the rules and he cheated. And so he's been thrown out by the, the horse racing um, club society. Um, and now he's just in this room, <laughs> like trying to figure out what to do. And he... He's broke, but he's still dreaming of glory and wants to get back in the race, but can't. And he has this like schizophrenic argument with his own reflection... Um, which is portrayed in voiceover. It's never really clear if it's him that he's having the argument with, or if it's like some sort of god-like figure, devil, something like that. Um, but I think I think it's fine to leave it ambiguous. Uh, he, he says that he's like the alter ego, like he's like a he's like a he, he, like the the being the reflection says that he represents the alter ego. He's a psychological phenomenon. And he grants uh, Mickey Rooney's wish to be Well, okay, so it's a classic, like, genie move where he's like, I'll grant you a wish. And Mickey Rooney is like, I want to be big, meaning I want to be the biggest 
person in my field, like the guy on top. Um, but he just said big, so then he just made him really tall. And at first he was really... But he's really happy He was so he's excited. Like, I didn't mean big literally. He was like, no, I kind of did mean big literally. I have, I have had this, like, Napoleon complex right. my whole life. Right. And I am pretty happy to be taller than I used to be. Right. But then he realizes, he gets a call that, like, oh, he can go back to horse racing. And, like, they're giving him a second chance. But then he, he... You can't race. You're huge. And then oh, no. he has a breakdown. I've taken it too far. And cries. Um, so like... I can't fit out the door. <laughs> it's like a pretty... I'd say it's a pretty pat ending. Like the ironic yeah, twist. But, the, but the, it's the buildup that, that's really good. I think for me there's sort of two different main types of bottle episode and so far we've mostly been talking about okay. the one where some sort of external pressure is put on these characters in some sort of single location that requires them to look inward and really evaluate themselves but it's not other people putting this pressure on them it's sort of the events so so one is more internal and then I think the other kind of bottle episode is one where it's about other people putting pressure on each other. Sure. Okay. I see what you're saying. So it's about, you know, other, it, it, it's about the interpersonal aggression that you experience in a, in a tight enclosed space versus the, the solo kind of um, isolation that creates internal struggle. Um, and those are the two different things. And I think those are both pretty clearly based on like psychological phenomenon. You know, these are things that are mythic to us because they are a shared human experience. When we're alone, we do question ourselves and we do, you know, have these kind of like hallucinatory, um, you know, arguments with ourselves. And when we're trapped in close spaces with other people, we tend to get antsy. We tend to get a uh, little aggressive. We get that fight or flight response in our amygdala. That's the, the part of the brain that uh, has impulsive... Welcome to Science Corner with David Frank about <laughs> the claustrophobic effects. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, not, I'm no scientist, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's just part of, it's part of what we all see as like the mythic idea of an enclosed space what does that represent for a human being and i think that's what you're getting at and i think exactly and i think some situations lend themselves and some writers tend to towards writing stories where this feeling of being trapped or whatever happens um, forces people to look inward and i think there are other ones where it forces them to look outward and then through looking outward, we're shown things about their inward psyche. Um, and I think it's just it's just two different ways of approaching it. I mean, I think Rod Rod Serling definitely um, t trends towards the internal for sure. Right. I mean, that's his that's his favorite space is the 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 sort of liminal spaces between conscious and and unconscious sur surface level and dreams and and putting that in in microcosm is his favorite thing to do and i love it too that's interesting that you say that because i think i tend to prefer the episodes um where there's inner Between people. right yeah yeah I, I i mean i love those too um i'm just <laughs> saying like for twilight zone i think it works very well to have 
um, just just one one on one, just a man, a man in, a in a room. Yeah. And I think that can produce some really great stuff to sort of talk about another episode that's almost just a man and a camera or or it certainly feels that way I would say um is the Breaking Bad episode from season three it's episode 10 Fly Fly yes this is a beautiful episode I so a little bit backstory I was I watched Breaking Bad I wasn't the biggest fan I got pretty far like I watched a lot of it like but I think going back and watching this episode was actually really nice. Because it's it kind of isolates the idea that this show is not portraying Walter White as an ideal. It, they're, if anything, they're kind of portraying Jesse as, like, the character for the audience to root for. Um, but, like, the... The point. The point is that it, this is this episode is a microcosm of the conflicts of the entire show. So if you like the entire show, you're definitely gonna like this episode. And if you don't like the entire show, you might still like this episode because it's kind of just a boiling down of everything. Two two things that I just this is just really great like TV filmmaking that's going on. I think in this episode, um, and I really want to call out the sound design, which I think gets overlooked often. Um, in TV shows and yeah, of course. I mean, it's super important. It's it's super important when you you have to feel like you're really there, and the way that we feel like we're in a space is through sound. Yeah, sound is very important. Um, but just there were so many moments throughout this episode where I really felt like a lot of character was being um. E- portrayed not just through the wonderful performances that um Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul are giving yeah like the filmmaking but it's the filmmaking it's the it's the production and the sound design and the camera movements especially i mean you'll just like you know this is like a Vince Gilligan staple but like you know you'll just have like a very close up on you know like a piece of gra- a glass that shattered or you know, showing the camera from the fly's perspective. Like, you know, this is the kind of stuff that people praise him for. Uh, I for, I forget the name of the woman who directed the episode, um, but apparently she's very much known for making very cinematic TV episodes, um, which I think was a great call. Absolutely. And I think you'll see that a lot in these because when you have very little going on in, in terms of, like, different sets, you need better camera movements. You need more dynamic filming style, you know, you need to compensate for it. And so you get more cinematic uh, directors and we'll get to some others later. Right. So, so this sort of comes at at least one of the first big like bottoms for Walt where like things have just been going bad. He feels horrible. Like it was supposed to be different than this. Um, And he's just not in a good place. And so basically he's in the lab this fly starts bugging him, um, and he's like, I can't cook any more meth until we get rid of this fly. Right, and the fly represents everything that you want it to represent. Right, he feels disrespected by this fly. He also feels that this fly is his goal, which is just out of reach always. The conflict that's presented at the beginning and end of the episode that kind of bookends this fly trouble is that Jesse has been skimming... um, meth off of the top about a quarter pound for each batch um to sell on his own 
and Walt doesn't know whether to confront him or not about this. So yeah, so but one thing I also want to say is this is clearly a bottle episode. He and Jesse basically are locked in this one room for most of the episode. It, it, it might be the purest bottle episode yeah. on this. List. If not the purest, like one. Of, <laughs> they make the purest shit. <laughs> Um, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's a very yeah. pure episode. Um, yeah, so, but at the same time, I would say they clearly spent some money on this episode. Like, they made a CGI fly. Like, right, well, but, like, how expensive is it really to make a CGI fly? I mean, this is, like, Word of God, um, which is a, a thing that TV Tropes refers to as, like, when a creator says something specific about their work. Um, this is one where Vince Gilligan was saying, like, we just built this brand new set that we were going to use repeatedly of this uh, new base of operations for Walt and Jesse, um, and they had, like, no budget. And so they had to make an episode that had, like, no other actors and that didn't have a lot of shooting locations. So that was this episode. Like, okay, it's definitely okay. bottle in terms of budget as well. Okay, sure. But, like, <laughs> Breaking Bad has a bigger budget than most television. So it's, you know, like the ones that are going to be topping the lists of best bottle episodes, sure, they're going to be for shows that have bigger base budgets than, you know, any high budget episode of like Roseanne or whatever. I don't know why I picked Roseanne. <laughs> well, so I, this one is a complicated one for me and I can't decide whether or not it falls into the internal side or the external character side of bottle episodes. I would say I, I would I would have a much more definite answer for you though. Um, because even though there is some conflict between Jesse and Walt in this episode, I would say it's mostly internal and you can see that in the thematics because the the enemy of the fly is so representative of internal struggle rather than right. Personal. I would I think I would agree with that. And like the big question that seems to be being asked throughout this episode is why am I doing this? Like why why? It seems so futile. I'm only hurting myself and people I love. You know why do I keep going? And there's there's almost like a half confession from Walt at this point, who in a previous season had murdered Jesse's girlfriend. Um, which like, yeah, that's, that's for, I think a lot of people, the point where Walt became pretty irredeemable. Right. And so this is, it's almost like a self-commentary by the the writer saying like, well, you know, was there really any point where he could have gotten out, you know? And like the conclusion is sort of like, yes and no, he could have gotten out at a million different places, but he wouldn't have accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. He wouldn't have made the money that he wanted for his family, he wouldn't have, you know, uh, become a drug kingpin, which is what he wanted to do, pretty much. Yeah, so so he has this really beautiful moment where he's sort of saying, I'm so sorry about Jane, which is his girl, Jesse's girlfriend's name, um, to Jesse, and Jesse doesn't understand that he's basically apologizing for killing her. Um, I think he recognizes it on some level. I mean, this is like... I really don't think he does. It's approaching the climax of... It's approaching the climax of Jesse really not trusting Walt at all and not telling him things. So I think he... He doesn't know that he killed her but but it, it really seems like a it's, it seems like a really beautiful moment between them but it's made all the more tragic by the fact that walt can't confess that that last thing um 
But we get this sort of, like, I, I really felt like the whole hero's journey on this, like, this is a beautifully plotted, like, Campbell-esque, like, story circle episode. Um, like, you can see, like, the meeting with, like, the call to action, the meeting with the goddess, the return, like, and then at the end, it really does. I, I love that basically the episode begins and ends on the same scene with Walt lying in bed, unable to sleep, staring up at the blinking uh, fire. fire um, sleep deprivation detector. is also a, a common theme that you'll see in a lot of these. So there's a contamination, like you said. This is a this is the fly. He refers to it specifically is as a the contamination, contamination, so people unquote. can't leave um, because <laughs> because they don't want to let in more flies. Not because there's a like disease or anything, <laughs> but um, there's a contamination. There's hallucination because it's implied several times that like uh, Walt is only you know you're not sure whether or not it's a real physical fly that they're dealing with or whether it's kind of this immortal fly that feeds on uh, on inner turmoil. Um, but like y you know, so you have hallucination, you have contamination, you have um, a bunch of other things that 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 are that are really common to these types of stories. I'm sorry, I got I got kind of lost in that one. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I think another episode also that really takes like two of its lead characters um, and then just puts them together in like a really beautiful way is um, the Mad Men season four episode seven uh, episode called the Suitcase. And this is pretty widely considered to be like one of the best episodes of Mad Men, like. Overall, yes. and that's I think what's really interesting about looking at some of these bottle episodes is that you would expect a lower budget to mean, you know, potentially to potentially mean lower TV. value to the episode entirely, but it's just not the case. It's the restrictions that the writer puts on the, on themselves are what lead to the quality of the writing. Right, like you have to work a little bit harder for it. You can't just have something explode. You really have to create like a story with emotional payoff and like, um, I think we definitely get this here. Um, where basically Peggy is forced to stay late on her birthday to work on an ad with Don that he did not like, um, on her birthday. <laughs> I mean, come on. To be fair. He... This is the saddest episode of Mad <laughs> It's sad, but it's also beautiful. And it's not. It's not nearly the saddest episode of <laughs> it's Mad not. Men. Um, but so so Peggy. Meanwhile, her boyfriend has. She keeps calling out to her boyfriend, being like, "Oh, I'm coming to dinner. I'll be there." But then ends up staying later, and he's getting more frustrated. She thinks she's just going on a romantic dinner with him, but he's actually done a surprise party and invited her whole family. But also, she doesn't really like her family, so she wasn't that thrilled that he had done that anyway. You know what? I'm hearing this, and like this, this sounds much less interesting than it is. I promise. <laughs> um, <laughs> like it's Meanwhile, not just like phone yeah. calls and like boyfriend troubles. Yeah, it's well, about but it is though the like, intimate. But it's about the intimacy between Don and Peggy, really. Like, the the external things are distractions. Exactly. And so I think on Don's side, he just found out that um, one of his oldest, truest friends, um, the woman who's The only dead, person who knows his true yeah, identity. Yeah. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> have you watched Mad Men? Um, sorry. <laughs> she, he, that woman um, has been sick with cancer, and he's pretty sure that she is about to pass away. And he doesn't want to confront that, but also needs to, but refuses to. And so his way of dealing with that is forcing Peggy to like work late with him, basically. On this suitcase. How do you market a suitcase? Uh, well, and then also, um, it's a set against the background of the um, Muhammad Ali fight when he was still Cassius Clay. Um, and Classic 60s set piece. They, they yep. love their set pieces in they Mad Men. They do. <laughs> We're in a time period. <laughs> um, sorry. I keep doing these voices. I love the um, voices. We keep thank doing you. the voices. I'll do the voices. Um so, so there's that going on in the background, um, and um, also previously in the season, Don had sort of taken credit, or Peggy felt that Don had taken credit for an idea that was hers, so there's some hurt feelings between the two of them going on, and even though Peggy's in a position of power now at this point, um, she still feels, like, very disrespected. Well, I mean, she's still absolutely a subordinate, you know? Like, um, like this is, uh, the creator of Mad Men has said that, like, th- this is supposed to be kind of a representation of what it's like to be in a TV writer's room. So, you know, aspiring writers out there, um, you know, Mad Men, it's not like a 100% like accurate representation, but it's, it's a representation of the, the emotions that run through a writer's room, the feelings of like, you have to provide credit for an idea or, you know, Someone changes your idea and you feel like a personal hurt from it, but you're, you're really just trying to create this work of art and that's the, the most important thing. And that's, there's a lot of natural conflict in that. So the two, this one I think is, is maybe the first one. So both of them are dealing with a lot of internal crap. Um, but I would say that also all that external stuff that's bouncing on them is, and being stuck together really causes the two of them to like bounce off each other. And like, we literally see it in the blocking um, staging of the episode is that they'll, they'll come together and then they'll fly apart. Like Peggy will storm out or have to go do something and then she'll come back and then she'll go out and then he'll come back and then they go out to eat food really quickly. And then they come back and like, there's there, it's a very bouncy er, like episode. Yeah. I mean, it, it very much, the, when the parts where she leaves the room, they feel very much like asides on like a stage, you know, um, you know, you would see a character walk through a threshold and pick up a phone, but you'd probably on in like a play, you would still see Don like in his office, like looking at the papers or whatever, um, because they're short enough that like, it just feels like it's part of the same scene almost. It feels like one contiguous play. And I and I think also um there's a lot of things that get brought up about the history that these two characters have with each other, the whole thing with Don stealing her idea and him giving her but also being the one to sort of give her her break into the industry. Um but then also he knows her. He honestly knows her the most intimately potentially. The most intimately out of anybody in the office and everyone else just kind of sees her as like the one girl who, you know, is being allowed to write. Well, he also knows her biggest secret, which is that back in season one, she got pregnant, and he actually knows who the father is. 
um, and knows all that. And not even Peggy's, like, mother knows that information. Like, it's just Don who knows. Oof. Lots of, lots of conflict Drama. and social conventions being broken. Um, it's, and I think it was interesting big, because the episodes seemed to keep making Peggy make these choices where she had to cho- keep choosing between men. Um, Hannah, I think we have to stop because I think, I think you have to explain, are you in trouble with the police? I can hear this. Oh, sirens. you can? <laughs> no, it's just outside. Uh, New York, the city of Mad Men. Um, sorry, what were you saying? Hey, there is a terrorist here today. I just wanted to acknowledge the sirens so that the audience isn't going like, do they hear it? Like, is something wrong? Sorry. Um. Ugh, I'm yeah, sorry just, that it's picking them saying? up so mad. But yeah, I think this episode also um, keeps making Peggy, like, make these choices between men, and Don is always the man who seems to win, but it's clearly not, like, in a sexual way, because in the same way that he knows her so deeply, like, he feels that he can be vulnerable with her, because when he finds out that his friend did die, Peggy is there, and, like, he lets her comfort him, but, like, not in a, like, now take me, like, comfort me sort of way, just in a, like... Yeah, I mean, the way that it's visually represented is that um, he sort of rests his head on her lap, and she's just kind of like smoking or, or, you know, just sitting there. Um, and and it's, it feels very like maternal. Um, and then, you know, when Don is talking to Peggy, it's paternal. So it's like they're, they're mother and father to each other. Um, and also co-workers and also like an old married couple and also, you know, just friends, you know, it's, it's very complicated, their relationship. Um, so really quick, I want to talk about, um, Dr. Who, cause we watched a couple of, um, episodes from this one episode from season one of the, the just new who, um, we didn't go classic or anything. <laughs> talk about budgetary issues. Which, I mean, yeah, they had those same kind of things there because like this definitely falls into the category this definitely falls into that category of budget is the big reason why these episodes are made. They got to reuse costumes, they got to reuse sets. They don't have the money to just be throwing it around on time travel all the time. Right. Can can you talk at all about um, the budgetary restrictions that were going on for Boomtown? Well, I mean, like season one, they were just experimenting with bringing this show back. Um, I should say series one because it's the the Brit way, um, <laughs> but like they, um, so they, they had built these, uh, really expensive Slitheme costumes for, and, and, and had the CGI for it for a, a huge two-parter, which was like the big two-parter of the season, um, which I call the, the farting alien two-parter. Um, cause Russell T is, is a campy motherfucker. He loves, he loves his camp. Um, and so he made um, a third episode, which comes right before the big finale, the big two-part finale with the Daleks. Um, he makes an episode called Boomtown, which reuses uh, the costumes from the Farting Aliens episodes and um, takes place entirely in Cardiff, which is where they mainly shoot Earth scenes anyway. So they didn't have to build new sets. Yeah, they didn't have to do, you know, any of that stuff. They shot on location for a couple of things, but, like, 
comparatively to other Doctor Who episodes, this is cheap. Um, and they're not trapped at all, but they are kind of, at, in parts, enclosed in social situations. So the Doctor um, is trapped in a restaurant and, with, with the alien, and then uh, he's, he traps the alien in the TARDIS with them, and they have like kind of a back and forth. So there is some kind of bottling of these characters, but it's not as claustrophobic as a lot of other ones. For sure. There's definitely a lot of, like, running around Cardiff. Um, <laughs> but I, I would say that this one, this one felt not so bodily to me, except in that it was very much about, and I think this is one of the strengths of Doctor Who is, um, or it can be one of the strengths, um, is that it really was forcing characters to confront stuff about themselves and the way they treat other people. And okay, you can see it that way. That's I just how see I it felt. as like lazy manufactured drama where Mickey shows up and is like, I'm, I'm dating somebody else. Right. Oh no, love triangles that don't matter because Rose does not care about Mickey at all and never has. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I just. Yeah, I don't know. But, like, it is characters bouncing off each other. Even if it's not the most elegant, for sure. it it certainly is that. I think for people who like this episode, I think kind of the thing that they would tend to like is there's a part of the episode where, you know, the doctor is talking to this homicidal alien, and the alien's like, you know, oh, I spared this one girl's life because she was pregnant and really nice to me. And the doctor's like, Every psychotic killer does that, and she's like, "Oh, are you a psychotic killer?" And he's like, "Spoken like a and killer, he's like, kinda, yeah." <laughs> but then he does spare the life of this homicidal criminal maniac. They do sort of give it; they give him an out because he was—he didn't know exactly what to do, but I think he was ready to turn her over and kind of let her die. I think there were plenty of outs. Like you could have come up with numerous solutions for this problem. You could drop her on a planet that's like so primitive that she can't cause any problems. Right, or uninhabited or whatever. Yeah, you could do any number of things, you know, or you could kill her. Like I don't care. Like the doctor does kill right. people all the right, time. Right, but it's I do like that it's it's usually at least a little bit of a moral dilemma when he's going to kill someone. Yeah. Which I yeah, think is it good. It definitely is. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. But, like, I think that this episode, it's, it's definitely not my favorite of season one. And season one is definitely not my favorite of Doctor Who. But <laughs> That is fair. <laughs> uh, let's go talk about something that is one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, season four, episode ten, Midnight. Uh, as you put it, the only good Russell T. Davies Which is an exaggeration. <laughs> but, I mean, Russell T. Davies, I have, I've got a lot of problems with him as a writer. Okay. We'll get to those. Um, so I I love this episode. I was so excited to go back and watch this one. Um, and I think this is, this is like a classic, like, train murder mystery almost. Yeah. But there isn't murder so much in the beginning. Right. Um, it's just like... These characters are on this four-hour-long car ride to see a beautiful place, and they're all on vacation, and they 
I love the scenes of them getting to know each other and the doctor just talking to everyone and clearly just having a great time. Um, and then things go awry when a mysterious creature, like nothing's supposed to be alive, uh, like outside on this yes, planet. It's a paradoxically vulnerable, but also incredibly powerful creature that possesses people to steal their voice. Well, we don't actually even know what it, what it really does because it's brand new, but... It definitely steals people's voices, though. Yeah, like it definitely controls people in some way. But in a so, very Twilight zone kind of thing, you're not yes. entirely sure at any point what this being is capable of, what it wants, or what's going on. So it very much turns into they're in this locked room with this mysterious creature and they sort of got to have to figure out what to do. Um, and it is all about just people bumping off of each other. And this is where I think we really start to see those um, bottle episodes, which I think I tend to like more, where it's less about people dealing with the sad things inside them and more about them like having to deal with other people while they're sad. Um, and it, and I think it comes, there's, there's an, an entire, um, West Wing episode called no exit based off of the, the play, um, where it's the, the whole... play, the 1944 play by Jean-Paul Sartre. Yes. Sartre. Love me Is some that... Sartre. Yeah. Sartre. I do. I love me some Sartre. Um, <laughs> but anyway, no exit. Uh, and no exit. They basically the main thesis of that is hell is other people. Um, and right. I think it's about people being trapped in a literal hell that is just like a it's room. Three dudes. With, it's with it's three sort people. of the good place. <laughs> right. It better. is. It is the good place, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it is. It for sure is the good place, um, which we can talk about later. But um, yeah, so this is very much. It's these characters. Like one has a f like. It's about mob mentality. It's yes. about bouncing Authority. from one idea to the next yeah. and about learning and blah, blah, blah. Um, I did think it was really interesting that the black women in this episode are the voices of reason slash the heroes. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, it's definitely it's definitely about confronting those, um, you know, classic power structures that we see, you know, the the, the main, like, person who's like willing to throw the doctor off of the ship and kill him is like this professor who's like really mean to his female black subordinate um and like doesn't believe in her you know opinions at all so it's it's definitely about confronting those kind of things oh for sure and um i think this episode and there are a couple others that do a really good job of building that fever pitch where like, things just slowly start to escalate and the tension starts to ramp up and then we hit that climax and, like, everything explodes. Like, like it really hits it hard and then we come back down from it and it's like, where did we all go? Like, what was this crazy adventure that we just went on? This was so insane. Um, and I, I really love the line at the end of this episode where... Um, the, the hostess of the... Yeah, she she dies and the doctor says, you know, what was her name? And they never say it explicitly. Yeah. You know, you just think of her as like a background character. She's a hostess. She's a stewardess. Right. And and you were, I think, explicitly told or hear like everyone else's name too. 
Um, and it was really interesting. He was like, what was her name? Right. Because that, that's something that the doctor does a lot is like, you know, remembering the little people. For sure. Because he's like a space god. <laughs> Um, oh, space god. And Russell T. and Moffat both love that about him. Also, even though Donna is only in this episode for like 10 seconds. She's, she's beautiful. I just, love, she's... I just love her rapport with the doctor so yeah. much. All right. Um, um, we'll move on, though. Yes. Uh, uh, I think, like, it would be good to talk about how, you know, we've mostly been talking about dramas. Uh, comedies. Yes, let's talk about some comedies. For sure. All right. Let's the get a little lighthearted staple. here. <laughs> The classic, everyone gets snowed in, yeah. everyone has to get, lo like, people get locked in a closet together, blah, blah, blah. It's, I think there's a Happy Days episode that might have been one of the earliest, like, sitcoms to do this, um, where, I, that's not true, I bet there's an I Love Lucy episode somewhere. <laughs> it's, 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 it's as old as TV itself, for sure. For sure. Um, it's, it's a play that, and like, that's the other thing is like, it's basically based off of playwriting where you can't have these insanely elaborate sets because you're forced to stay on this one stage with a limited amount of space and it's all dialogue. Yeah. And you can't, you, you're limited by how fast you can change the sets. Like it's, it's all dialogue and character. Um, so I think, um, but yeah, there's an episode of happy days where I all get locked in a like closet. Like a freezer or something. Oh no, we're all trapped. <laughs> the ones we're going to talk about are a little bit more recent than that. Yeah, so like Seinfeld, let's talk Seinfeld. This was like the episode that really cemented in a lot of people's minds. What is Seinfeld? It's a show about nothing. It's a show about nothing. And it's the Chinese restaurant. How, how did you like this episode? I love the Chinese restaurant. Are you kidding? Do you, do you not enjoy this one? I did not enjoy this Come one. Come on. It's the, the scene where Elaine, like, walks over and no, just that's eats amazing. Here's food the thing. off of other people's <laughs> plates. <laughs> I, this to me, it felt like watching, uh, or like looking at a cave painting a little bit, where it was like. It's, it's, it's not what Seinfeld became, which right. became a show about nothing that was truly incredible in its focusing on the mundane, but. Well, no, and I think this this was for sure that it's it's even less about I think what Seinfeld becomes, but what like this type of episode becomes. Like it felt it's very slow and like it feels very piecemeal. Um, and this is for sure one where I think everyone's dealing with their own thing, and it's not so much about them like pissing each other off. Like other people are pissing them off. Um, but it's like all external stuff that like they're dealing with their own internal reaction to it. All right. I see what you're saying. Um, it's not like Jerry makes like someone mad and then, um, I, I can see that, but I just, I, I love the, the, the anxiety of like, I'm waiting for this phone call. I got to get this phone call. And then they call for Cartwright instead of Costanza. The timing was just off for me. I like, know. Like this kind yeah. of stuff, it feels very relatable. And, you know, just having to wait a long time for food and having to, oh, we got to get to this movie. It's Plan 9 from Outer Space. It's the worst movie ever made. George. Like, I think there were really great moments in it, but I think as a whole, I found the timing to be off. Like it wasn't All as... Right. I'll buy like, that. I just don't think the like acting was there. And to be fair, it's season two of a show that ran for so long. Uh, like, that's fine. And it's like, 
still somewhat the early days of the modern sitcom. I think I think you're right that they it probably it probably got a little bit better or, you know, at least, you know, felt a little different when yeah. they did it the next season, The Parking Garage. I think the biggest sitcom for me that felt like um, a stage play, though, was the Frasier episode. Um, this is actually the season finale, I believe. Of season one, yeah. yeah. Um, season one, episode 24, My Coffee with Niles. It's an obvious reference to My Dinner with Andre. Yeah. Um, which is a movie about a conversation. Um, and it was very much just a conversation. And it was, this one also sort of reminded me um, a little bit about the Breaking Bad episode because I think the central question in that one is, why am I doing this? Uh, in this one, Niles is asking the central question of uh, Frasier, like, are you happy? And I think, I think they do some really good, like, nothing like insanely like mind-blowing writing but just like really strong writing yeah i mean people like fraser because it is like a like a play like a um uh i i don't know you know that that kind of early 20 20th century expressionist um play, play writing where you would just kind of have two characters and they just talk and you you really get to like who are these people? Right. And I think that's why people like Frasier in general. Like, I think you'll see with a lot of these episodes that they just really play to the strengths of the shows that they are in. Like, you know, every episode of Seinfeld is about, you know, mundane things, but it's really funny when you just stick it in one place. Every episode of Breaking Bad is about, you know, should I keep going? Should I keep doing this? But when you stick it in one place, you really get to see it all boiled down. Yeah. I think that's something you see with Frazier. Absolutely. Well. There's, there's, I just love the, um, the question, are you happy? He keeps being interrupted by other people coming into the scene, his friends, his father, um, et cetera, the coffee coming. Um, and he keeps sending the coffee back. Uh, and then it finally comes at the end and his response to like to getting the coffee back is his answer to the "Are you happy?" question. <laughs> Are you satisfied? You know what? Yes. Yeah, and and then he drinks the coffee and it's disgusting. <laughs> right. <laughs> it undercuts itself. It's a comedy. It's just like that's it does it does. But I I love that and I think it's just yeah. really some really good writing. And then for some not. It doesn't blow me away with how funny it is. Friends also did a bottle episode that we should just reference since we spent so much time talking <laughs> yes. about Friends before. Um, the one where no one is ready. Yes. It's all in Monica's apartment. Um, and it's all... Honestly, all right. Okay. I will say this. I sympathized with Ross for a really long time in <laughs> for this. For longer than you did in any other episode of who, that show. Who has... Who has a sister who takes forever to get ready. Uh, I can sympathize with being like, hey, um, just like you can mess around and do whatever. But can you at least just like be dressed while you're doing it? You know, like and like especially it's a big important like event for him. Like it wasn't something like actually that trivial. It was something kind of important. Um, so like like I I felt for him I felt for Ross I, I I I sympathize but he is a little bit of a nag Oh and then also the point at which he yells at Rachel I immediately am like Oh okay <laughs> you are an asshole All right <laughs> Very much so Yeah so so in this one I think 
this one I think is almost a 50-50 split. No, this one's definitely just clashing personalities. Like, it's it's all Hella's other people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's nothing internal. And I think you'll find that that's no, typically, that's pretty common for comedies because you, you need a lot of conflict for comedy. It doesn't really work to be very introspective in a comedy. Um, and, and, you know, I think that that sort of goes into that conflict. I think that ties in pretty well to where a lot of people were first introduced to the concept of a bottle episode which was in Community, in the episode of Season 2, Episode 8, Cooperative Calligraphy, which is what happens there. Um, and I, I will say this, I don't know if it's just because of how familiar we are with Community or what, <laughs> um, but Season 2 of Community is just absolutely packed with bottle episodes. Yeah, and I think it's because, you know, that show was still finding its footing. It had a limited budget, but Dan Harmon is a crazy person and decided to do a huge two-part um, paintball episode and, you know, other just big budget episodes for, like, virtually no reason. An animated episode yeah. in season two, right? Like, that was that was the one where Ahmed's uncontrollable yep. Christmas happened. Yeah, there was... Dang. But also at the same time, like, he spent so much of his own <laughs> money on the show. Like, that's how much budget crisis they were in. Um... But also a huge commitment to, like, making a good product and making, like, really good TV. In Cooperative Calligraphy, one of the characters, Abed, who is um, a TV fanatic himself, very trope-savvy. He's constantly throughout the show pointing out a whole bunch of, like, meta stuff that's happening, but to usually to humorous effect. Yeah, so he states that, the, that they're doing a bottle episode because they are trapped in the study room by by themselves, you know, no one else oh, is which trapping is them. My favorite part that is okay. That's my favorite part of cooperative calligraphy, and I think is what makes it, if not my favorite, definitely in the top like three uh, episodes. Yeah, I think it's my favorite as well. Um, it's it really does all have all the strengths of a good bottle episode and all the strengths of a good community episode. Uh, yes, so exactly. It's really but fantastic. It just. There's nothing actually trapping them in this room but each other. Right. The plot is just that Annie has lost several pens. And this is the final straw slash pen. And she snaps. And, and um, I, so both of us have watched this with commentary. And at one point, um, Dan Harmon uh, on the commentary track says, I love the idea that what kept these people in the room, which is love for one another and that all right we love annie so we'll help her find her pen and like we also want to prove ourselves innocent that no we didn't take her pen right um, and then it devolves into hate but then you return to right it returns to this place of listen like if we all love each other this much at a certain point we just have to accept that like this pen is gone um, <laughs> and they they end up deciding that what happened was a ghost took it because they just needed to believe something to let each other. It wasn't even to let themselves off the hook. It was to let each other off the hook because they didn't want to hate each other. Be angry. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I, to me, this is like the perfect hell is other people, but like with a happy, Absolutely. beautiful a happy twist yeah. at the end where it's like hell is other people and heaven is other people. Exactly. It's like we can't escape both. This is why we live in the world in which we live.
I think it's important to talk about the camera work in, in this episode in particular because um, directed by Joe Russo, who you may know better for Captain America Civil War <laughs> and Captain America... Among other things. You know, multiple Captain America movies, big action yeah. set pieces. But where they got, you know, some of their start is on, you know, low-budget, one-set drama or comedies that are just about talking. And I think that's really indicative of, of what is required for a truly great bottle episode. Right. And I think um, they make Joe Russo also is on the commentary track for this episode. Uh, and he, he mentions that as the episode progressed, they moved from steady cam to handheld, sort of a more shaky cam uh, operation to sort of increase that sense of like tension and frustrated uh, action um, that was going on. Yeah. Like it gave it a like a really interesting energy. Um, and like, this is all just, uh, it's beautiful watching these characters bounce from one thing to another. And it's all against each other and things are exposed and then things are hurt. And all of the dialogue is true to the characters and what it they is. value. And it's so funny. Britta is still totally about, about privacy and human rights and fighting for all that stuff. Whereas, Jeff is just trying to be like a leader and, and, you know, like take control of the situation and Troy just doesn't know what's going on. Right. They, they plant a lot of things in this episode that come back later in the season, which is one of the strengths of community is that like sort of very small, but steady long form storytelling that goes on in the background almost. Um, and <laughs> I'll just say this, um, Abed has a great quote. Uh, from this episode, uh, where he just says, I hate bottle episodes. They're wall-to-wall -wall facial expressions and emotional nuance. I might as well sit in a corner with a bucket on my head, uh, since he is... But he's extremely useful in the episode. He's really helpful. He is! So, he's wrong. But just, I, I love that a character like Abed would hate that in a TV episode. He likes the Star Trek episodes where people are blowing shit up. He doesn't like the ones where they uh, right, where they're just on the bridge. and fight with swords. Yeah. Um, so just really quickly, that's one, two, three, four. I'd say that there are four other episodes in season two alone. All right, let's run that, through them. All right, there's epididymology, which is... Um, epidemiology. Epidemiology, sorry. Right. All right, do it, do it. Call me out. <laughs> um, this is the zombie Halloween episode that takes place entirely in the library. Uh, it also, everyone gets amnesia at the end because... They need to. And there's a contamination. There's a a, yes, there's a contamination. Like contamination. Exactly. So they are quarantined because of a contamination, which right. is classic. Um, this one is, there's not even so much like, there is a moment of sort of the group all being combative with one another. Um, but for the most part, it's just dealing with zombies. Um, then there's the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons episode, which is episode 14. Um, also directed by Joe Russo. Yes, where a character who is nicknamed Fat Neil by Jeff is invited to play Dungeons and Dragons because Jeff is scared that this kid is going to kill himself. Um, and so then they all play Dungeons and Dragons to try to make it like make him feel like part of a community. Right, and not to dwell on this one too much, but um, I think it is important to talk about the sound design again. Hugely important with this one because they have to uh, they have a lot of non diegetic sound that is supposed to represent the sound in the game world. So arrows zinging and and stuff like that. And I think you know 
camera work, sound, both very important when all you have is dialogue. You don't have any of the visual production design. This one sort of sets up um, Chevy Chase's character, Pierce, uh, who is an older member of the group, uh, really sort of starts to solidify his descent into villain for the rest of the season. He is very antagonistic towards Neil, um, and actually becomes the villain in the game. Um, so they're like, it's really nice the way that they use Dungeons and Dragons as this like backdrop for, and, and they don't do the thing where they like break away and the characters are all in costume or anything. It is just them sitting at a table playing Dungeons and Dragons, which is amazing. And then the last one, uh, that's a bottle episode is called Applied Anthropology and Culinary Arts. It's the one where Shirley gives birth and it takes place 100% in the anthropology room. Um, and this one, this one's pretty classic. Like they're initially anthropology is such a blow off class, but then the Dean brings like a reporter in to show off how great their college is. So they feel, they feel trapped by that at first because uh, they can't leave this room because they're supposed to be taking a final. Um, but then Shirley goes into labor. Uh, she's bound to have a kid. And so that's supposed to be a way to get them out. But then she can't leave because the ambulance can't get in because there's a food. <laughs> it's supposed to be like a food around the world. So that that happens. So then um, that's all of the ones for season two. But then there are a few other ones that pop up elsewhere. There's one critical film studies, um, which is, uh, it's not necessarily exactly also a bottle season episode. Two. Oh, right, that's also season two. Um, but it's not necessarily a bottle episode because it's two sets that are, that might've been pretty expensive. It's interesting because- Again, it's mostly about conversations and character conflict. It's a, it's a my dinner with Andre episode, but it's my dinner with Abed. And, um, it, you know, that's kind of ties it into the Frasier episode. You know, lots of connections firing. But then you've also got, in season three, you've got Remedial Chaos Theory, which is a bottle episode. Which I think a lot of people consider their this favorite their favorite episode. community episode. Yeah. It was actually nominated for a Hugo Award, which is like, that doesn't happen <laughs> to doesn't NBC happen comedies. comedies. <laughs> On NBC. Like, like... <laughs> That's not a thing that happens, but then it did. And why would it be? But but it is it is a really good episode, and it's typically like a, a common fan favorite. And then cooperative calli calligraphy is Dan Harmon's favorite of that season. Like these bottle episodes are the best community episodes. Like they they really are because community's strongest point is always its writing. And right. always it's characters and always the funny things that they say to each other and like the heartfelt and like honest way that they interact. Absolutely. Because even even when they're going on crazy animated adventures that don't actually make any sense, <laughs> they like make sense on a on, on like a an emotional level. level. Yeah. If that <laughs> on an interpersonal like level, on the level that you have with your friends. Well, exactly. And it's just amazing. I think we could talk for probably three more hours just about community. And then to like cap it off, in season five, you have an episode called Cooperative Polygraphy, which mirrors cooperative calligraphy. And in that one, they're also trapped in a room and there's a polygraph. So they all have to be incredibly honest with each other. And that's interpersonal conflict. Right. Yeah. And there's a couple more episodes um, that we watched it, to prep for this that we didn't really talk about. We watched a couple of episodes of Buffy. Yeah. I think the Buffy, the Buffy episode, Older and Far Away, 
is a pretty good example of how, like, you're dealing with a fantasy show. So normally there's a lot of effects of, like, vampires that look really crazy and have a lot of makeup or digital effects or, you know, all this, this stuff. This is pretty, pretty low on effects. So it's just everyone, the, 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 the conflict is just that everyone can't leave this house because of a magic spell. Right. So, I, I do love the way that it was resolved where the vengeance demon who trapped them all there enters the house and then she and then can't, can't leave, leave. Uh, <laughs> until they do it. I think this one definitely falls into the, like, hell is other people category. Right. What do you think of, like, Dawn as being totally unsympathetic and terrible? For the episode? Am I alone in this? <laughs> no, I think this is not a strong Dawn episode. I just, I don't think it's a, that strong of an episode, period. Um, right. I Both of the Buffy, Buffy episodes we watched. Buffy loves a big budget. Yeah, Buffy does. Buffy doesn't need a small budget to be good. Buffy needs a big budget. Not to say that Buffy character, like, like, the strength of Buffy isn't necessarily its characters. Certainly they're beloved, but they're not, like, what the show is. It's the conflict, it's the Joss conflict that he makes in the external that reflects internal. Exactly. It's, it's less about... About that group dynamic angst right. okay. and, that's, yeah, I guess and that's more of that thing. internal angst. Yeah, it's like, what is Buffy struggling with this week rather than what is the gang doing with each other? Right, and there's a couple episodes of the Ice, Fi- uh, the Ice Files, the X-Files, um, the season one, episode eight, episode Ice. Which is just a shot-for-shot remake of John Carpenter's The Thing, literally with the same production designer Oh, really? John Carpenter's The Thing, yeah. So basically just recreating that set that, you know, the North Pole set, but, you know, instead setting it in Nome, Alaska. But, you know, it's the same episode. It it sort of reminded me of um, the Star Trek episode that we talked about. Oh, yeah. Um, The the, the Naked Time or, or, yeah. Yeah, The Naked Time. Because there's an infestation, there's a quarantine. An infestation that came from the ice. Yep. Uh, There's an ancient threat. Um... Oh, real quick, Mm -hmm. before we wrap up, talk about the West Wing, because Aaron Sorkin, the master of dialogue, master of forcing characters together. Yeah, he likes the the interpersonal that we were talking about, where it's, you put two people in a room and you see them get angry at each other. We watched two of them. I think No Exit is the clearest one where it's like it's i i liked this one because yes people are quarantined but they're quarantined in different groups um and they're in groups that we don't necessarily see forced together all the time which i liked josh is forced in with someone who cut his joke uh so they have to deal with that there's toby and the other guy what's his name do you remember uh leo Toby and Leo. He, he was the chief of staff, but yeah. And then, yeah, so that was that was one episode. The first one that um, Aaron Sorkin really definitely had budget issues for was 17 People, which was season two, episode 18. Um, and that was like, he was told, you can't have any guest actors. Right. You can't have any sets outside the White House. Right. And you can't have, um, there were so many limitations. You couldn't have any special effects or anything. It was just the White House set and just the characters that you had for every episode. Um, so that one's really a boiling down. But he does a great job. And I think I think a lot of these episodes that we talked about are some of the episodes that people sometimes remember the most. And I think being able to craft a really solid half hour to 45 minute long like show, like a little play, is a really impressive feat of writing and not something that every television writer wants to do or likes to do. But I think when they are forced to do it, you get some 
some good good results. Absolutely. Um, there was one other West Wing bottle episode that I watched, uh, which was called Isaac and Ishmael, and that was a a bottle episode because it had to be produced very very quickly in response to 9-11. And this one certainly felt the most preachy, I'll say. Oh, of course. But, but I mean, Aaron, Aaron Sorkin's always preachy. Yeah, but this felt especially preachy. But this one is a, it's a 9-11 episode. It's gonna be preachy. I mean, Right, like, basically the White House staff are each talking to this group of students who are in the White House during what they call a crash, which is just a, like a lockdown. And I do think there's some nice plotting in that we cut away from that scene it's really just one scene investigating this one guy who might be a threat to the White House because he has the same name as a terrorist suspect. And, you know, it's about racial profiling, it's about all that stuff. But then it cuts away to everyone in the cast just explaining to a bunch of teenagers what terrorism is. And they're really bad at it. I just want to run through, like, all of the comparisons that they made. I want, yeah, I just want to run through, like, they make these weird comparisons that are really awkward today. Like, they're just like, one of them says that terrorists are the KKK, uh, that's Josh, and another one says that, like... I mean... And then they, like, are confused about whether or not terrorists hate our freedom. Like, yeah. is it political or is it religious? Like, they're really not sure about it. Right. They go on this rant about, like, whether the CIA should be tapping phones... And they kind of come to the conclusion that it's like, it's kind of okay if they're tapping phones to stop terrorists. And then, oh man, just <laughs> Toby starts talking about how the Taliban is like Nazis in Poland. And I, I'm like, not really at all. It's very, very different. <laughs> um, in that we can't just like go fight a natural war with uh, Iran and Iraq and just only kill Nazis, you know, we can't only kill Taliban people. It's, it's, maybe I'm just getting into too uh, rough of a topic, but like, it just seems like they got in, in over their heads as well. And it just way too, way too quick to be like, uh, quick, say, say something about terrorism. Ah! Right. Well, so the message at the end was that we live in a pluralistic society and that, like, that's a good thing and we should continue to look at a, live in a pluralistic society and that means accepting conflicting ideas sometimes. And I think they do a good job of having each character sort of each present a new side to something, whether or not they do a good job of it. And that the idea is that there's not just one correct answer and that, like, sure, these are some of the smartest people, but, like, they don't always have all of the answers. And, yeah, I don't know. And I did think it was nice that every time they cut between the um, cafeteria with the students to the interrogation with the White House staffer, that every time they went back to the cafeteria, they had added another cast member. So it felt like this. it was this really nice way, I think, of building tension in the episode and um, building it all up. I, I think, you know, th there were a couple things that, uh, that we didn't really touch on, which are like, sometimes you have bottle episodes that just kind of zero in on something that's in the background. So like, if your show is ostensibly about um, medical practice or, you know, being a surgeon, but you never really show surgery as the central point of the episode, Sometimes you'll have an episode that's just about a surgery. So you have a Grey's Anatomy episode uh, called The Room Where It Happens in season 13. And you have MASH at, with an episode called OR, um, you know, the operating room. So just kind of, 
it can be it can be useful for a writer to use a bottle episode to kind of zero in on mm-hmm. something that you take for granted in the other episodes. All right, I think that wraps up everything. Right. That... Do you want to sort of run through and say, you know, what what are the categories and what are the what are the traits of a bottle episode as you see it? Um, I, I feel like I'm just repeating myself now because I think I said it a lot. Right. But you got the intra introspective and the interpersonal. You've got the ones where people are trapped physically, or the ones where they kind of trap themselves. Yes, uh, I think there are most bottle episodes are due to budgetary restraints, but I think some of them are just purposeful from the writer trying to zero in on on a particular relationship right. or a particular uh, location on set. Right. Um, or really trying to like do something exciting, but it's still just having all of the characters in a room and that's the exciting thing. And these aren't always the best episodes of a show, but they tend to be the standouts because they're different. Exactly. They're, I think whether or not, um, they're the best, I think they're almost always necessary, not just from a budgetary standpoint, but from a pacing standpoint for your show. Cause your audience is going to get, this is one reason I got exhausted with Breaking Bad is because every episode, it just gets worse. Like it's this like constant, like high tense, like high energy, like stress. You take a break and have a slow paced episode and, and that right. really makes all the other episodes stand out more in the season. Exactly. That's really character focused and allows us to like, not only allows us the audience, but allows the characters to sort of take a breath and refocus. Um, I think that's really important from a writing standpoint um, and as a viewer. Right. And I think as far as some of the tropes and the mythic aspects that go along with these tropes, I've, I've said it before a little bit, but just to you know, really wrap it up. The in, the the intrapersonal ones where you're talking about multiple people trapped in a room, I think those work because you have this amygdala fight or flight response where you're, you know, you're you're claustrophobic, you're trapped, and you just you're like a caged animal and you just want to fight everybody. And so everybody yells at each other. And then for the ones that are more introspective, that's like the isolation of like being on a spaceship or being a hostage, you know, you, you you sometimes have hallucinations in those episodes or, you know, people just going crazy because they're just so trapped in their own mind. And so I think those are kind of the mythical human aspects of these stories that make them so common. Sure. Thanks for sticking with us, guys. I feel like this was a long one, maybe. Uh... <laughs> I, I had a great time. Yeah, I mean, I just think that we had a lot of individual episodes that we went really in-depth with, and I, I think that's uh, that's good. And I, I, I encourage you all to check out these episodes for yourself and form your own opinions. Please, again, tell us if there's any of your favorites that we missed or if you have um, any further insight into bottle episodes that you really that you really want to share with us. Yeah, and let us know if there are any tropes or topics that you want us to cover in the future. Yeah, you can find us on Twitter at Talking Tropes, and we will see you guys in two weeks.